Welcome to the Gandhi First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with the Peter Evers here at the Banzi World Headquarters in Brockton, Massachusetts. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. And certainly the 4th of July holiday weekend provides a lot of time you know, for personal uh, reflection and also for you know, thinking about where we are as, as a country, where you are in your life, and all, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, as this 4th of July weekend hit, I was thinking about how different, you know, things are now as compared to, you know, a year ago. And you know, Joe Biden marks this weekend as being kind of the return to normal, if you will. America is back. And certainly, you know, different places are in different spots where here at Bamsey, things may be different with COVID than the place in Rhode Island or in Connecticut and in different communities across the country in different places, largely based upon the vaccination rate. So there is no clearly identifiable truth about where we are, but I'm curious as to where, where you think we are. And, you know, where is Bamsey now? Where is you know, this community at now as compared to, you know, 4th of July, say, two years ago before all this hit? Wow, that's a uh, wide-ranging question, Chris. And I think I'd like to start by thanking all of those people that worked this weekend uh, and uh, enabled us, um, others, to to spend time with family and um, and do all of those Fourth of July thing, things. I think you know those folks who worked um, as ever keep this organization going, and of course that's a reflection on what's happened over the last year more intensely than any other time. And um, you can never say that enough and you can never express your thanks enough to the people that brought uh, Bamsey through this last year. So again, thank you. Question's a good one though. Um, Who would have predicted this sort of bell curve of misery, I suppose, that we've had over the last year? Um, And who would have, um, you know, been able to spin some of the stories that have come out of that that have been so inspirational, including, I think, the development of a vaccine within record times uh, when there was a lot of cynicism, I think, in the country around we're not going to be able to do this, you know, the vaccine won't be safe. And uh, I think there's been all of these stages where that has been proven not right. And it's a miracle of human ingenuity um, that has dealt with a virus that is the cause of human behavior, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting uh, fact. Uh, And, you know, when you think of the ability to communicate, if this COVID had happened five, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to Zoom. Everything would have been done on a a telephone, which would have been uh, just not doable. So, there's been some coincidental things that have happened in terms of our ability to manage these situations. I think we're still far off where we were uh, two years ago. Uh, I still think that we'll be, uh, or I will be, wearing a mask in in public for the time being, making sure that um, I learned the lessons of the last year. You know, flu, it's interesting that the flu um is going to be hard to create a vaccine for next year because we've had so few cases of it. That is directly related, I believe, to all of the precautions that we've been taking for COVID in terms of washing and wearing masks. So lessons that we can take there. Um, the question, though, Chris, is a good one, and I'm interesting, what, interested what you think about it. We talk about futurists. Futurists come on and they say that work will be changed forever and we'll never go back to the way that we were. Yet I'm reading stories in all kinds of industries where 
businesses are bringing people back to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, others are saying no. Uh, I think it was Citibank are just going to mm-hmm. go completely remote. I don't know if we're at a position where we can make any of those predictions. We just have to see what happens over the next year in terms of a few things. How safe are we in our communities with the Delta um, uh, variant um, still strong? And in other states, we've done really good with it. How do people feel about coming back to work? Are they are they terrified about coming back to work? Are they okay about it? What are we doing as an organization to make sure that our buildings are clean and, and as protective as can be? Um, and what can be done away from the workplace? But also, are we going to capitalize on reducing our footprint in terms of square footage of the space that we inhabit right now. All of those questions on a a big whiteboard are out for us to answer, and I don't know if we can really be clear about exactly how those things are going to come out. A couple things to offer that. I mean, first, on the vaccine, then we'll get to the the workforce stuff. To me, the vaccine's success story is one of the most understated and underrated uh, things we have seen in American history. And, you know, perhaps, you know, really in the context of this time and you know, some of the uh, confusion, if you will, about the vaccine, I guess, some of the misinformation as well has created a different environment. But when you consider how good it appears, and again, it, I think we still kind of take an yep. see approach to a large degree, but how good it appears this vaccine is, um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, consider the fact that you know, even in our best hopes, we thought that maybe um, with the vaccine we would be protected ourselves, but we would still be um, have the susceptibility to give the virus to others that we could be carriers for. That's proven to be not true, and that the vaccine is also effective in against against us carrying the virus and and um, infecting individuals who are not vaccinated, our kids or people who've made the choice not to get vaccinated. So to me, that's a huge success story. And, you know, we see how long the vaccine can potentially last without having to get boosters. I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It appears that I'm going to have to get um, the booster sooner than those mm-hmm. that, that got the other ones. But the other ones have been, they've been said that they could be uh, effective for um, a period of 10 months, I believe, or in, in that neighborhood. I believe the Johnson Johnson is eight months, um, six to eight months. So the, the effectiveness is incredible to me, and that's a big deal, and that uh, it is seen to be you know, so successful. And again, media picks up on things like, okay, this person got COVID, or this percentage of people got COVID. Even those numbers, if you're going on a percentage basis, are less than what was anticipated you know, in terms of the effectiveness, where they said this will be 88% effective or 92% effective, and those numbers are better. So I think the success of the vaccine is one of the most understated parts of this pandemic to date. Um, so get your take on that, and then we'll do the workforce. I do. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And you think about how effective the flu vaccine is on any given year. It's probably between 50 and 75 80%. We have 
being, we, I'm taking credit for something apparently. Yeah, <laughs> we, go ahead, <laughs> this country and, and other countries um, showed that when things really have to be sorted, when things have to be worked out, the government put says, you know what, we're going to give you this money uh, and, and this research money is yours as opposed to the risks that pharmaceutical companies do have to take on experimental medications that don't come to anything. It, all bets were off. It was just spend what you need to spend and that and and then it, and, and it came and it came along. Now, I don't think we'll have that kind of percentage effectiveness over time because what happened with flu is there are variants mm-hmm. to it uh, and they come from different parts of the world. But I think I think the other thing is that, you know, post-contraction, we're now working out the medications and the interventions that look after that group of people who are more vulnerable, you know, who have pre-existing conditions. So all of those things coming together will allow us, and I heard somebody say this weekend, um, to live with COVID as opposed to fight COVID because COVID is here, it's going to be here. How do we then manage it and live with it like we have done with all those other diseases in the past? So I agree with you. It's it's a, it's a phenomenal um, achievement that people should be really proud of. Yeah, I think that everybody deserves a lot of credit for you know the pandemic uh, and you know for individuals and adapting to uh, the workplace environment, adapting to losing their um, their job and having to live with government assistance for you know a period of time, uh, adapting as homeschoolers. Um, kids having to adapt to a new environment and trying to make the most of, of those circumstances. And businesses, the way that they have adapted, and workers, the way that they have uh, adapted as well. Um, the, the government uh, has done a, a good job in trying to uh, allocate resources and utilize their tools in order to um, you know, create success. And, and to me, you know, COVID is going to be something that people just don't want to talk about moving forward. And they don't want to talk about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here we are, but they don't want to talk about it now. And there's not going to be a lot of you know, patting on the back and, and talking about how we survived this circumstance. But I feel like there should be a lot more of that. Um, but instead, there's just this collective, I don't, want to, I don't <laughs> even want to think about it anymore type of um, mentality. But to me, uh, the way that America has bounced back from this is a great American you know, success story. And, you know, you look at Canada and they're still trying to get the vaccine out to folks. They're a little bit behind on that. Other countries across the the world um, are still are waiting on the United States to a large degree to uh, give them the vaccine. So, I mean, COVID is a, a great American, you know, success story to a large degree, but we come from a baseline of a lot of people thinking that we overreacted and that none of this should have happened to, to begin with. We shouldn't have shut things down. Should have been a survival of the fittest. Just move forward. No masks, no nothing. And there's that mentality. Then there's also a mentality, oh, we can't really have a mission accomplished moment yet because mission is not accomplished and we're going to have COVID with us. And then there's the middle that really just wants to live their lives and doesn't really care about what happened in the past. Let's, let's talk about the future. So that's why, in my view, we are where we are, because nobody really wants to acknowledge the circumstance and the successes and say, you know, hey, those who developed the vaccine, great job. Those who worked um, hard hours during the course of the pandemic to keep America moving, good job. Kids, Good job. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to congratulate because everybody's in this 
mindset that doesn't allow for that to take place. Yeah, and I think it became a very political thing really early on, not just in America, but you know, when when you think about what happened in Europe as well. And and you know, it's worth remembering that only one percent of people from Africa have been um, uh, vaccinated with two shots now. So the work is still there to be done. I think the G7 or the G8 did a pretty good job of uh, committing uh, to vaccines to uh, some of those countries. But we can't leave the world behind in this. You know, it's in our own interests, I think, to make sure that some of those uh, less well-off nations uh, get every chance they can to be vaccinated. And I think that's a, a, a move that we have to make. But I think, you know, Chris, when I think about COVID and I think about the future, I think about how different it is for people in terms of how they view it. You said it. There's the three the, the three places on the continuum, you know, overly cautious, middle of the road, and those people who just didn't believe in it. Uh, and those people all have a mindset, and it's so different. Or believed in it thought there was an incredible overreaction to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you could make the case for all of those things. But let's talk about workforce. How does that affect workforce? How does that um, how does that affect the psyche of a working population? So I, I heard something the other day. I read something um, in one of the newspapers that said that many many people are just saying, you know what, this isn't this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be working in a job full time right now. I've experienced what it's like not to work, and there are other things in life and. I was actually watching over the weekend on Apple TV um, a documentary called 1971, which I can relate to <laughs> as a 10-year-old. And, <laughs> and, um, Do the math, folks. Yeah, uh, but really it was about the hippie generation and Timothy Leary and this whole you know, tune-in, drop-out thing. And the, the hippie movement at the same time was, was saying the same thing. We don't want to commit to a work life. Um, you know, we don't want to repeat what our parents did. I wonder how much this um, hiatus in our working culture is going to affect this generation, people in Gen Xs, whatever, in terms of how they value their lives and all the other things they do in it. I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge believer in kind of these watershed type of moments generally. I think there's a lot of uh, contributing factors that lead to widespread outcome. But I think that um, this circumstance combined with the economic downturn of uh, 2008 and the Iraq War previous to that have created a, a millennial uh, mindset and even you know, newer generations' mindset on work and on you know, giving your, your everything to that job and what is it going to give you back. And you know, look at the downturn of 2008 where many people lost their savings and had to go you know, back to work um, after they had put so much into their work life. And you know, kids who were going off to a nice school saw things kind of shattered from there. There's a different mindset on uh, four-year school versus community colleges and um, a change in you know, the post-high school um, thought. And I think that we're kind of in that space again, but I think it's also bringing in a lot of individuals who may be in their 50s and have worked a certain way for a long period of time and are now saying, yeah, I've saved up uh, enough money where I don't really have to go back and work full time. Maybe we're just going to take some time and get an RV and drive around the country before 
you know, it's too late. Like that, those types of thought where people are seemingly, humans are generally risk adverse, but it seems like people after this pandemic are perhaps a little bit more willing to take risks than they were prior to that. I also feel that with that environment and with the, the workforce issues, that we're in a space now where more so than ever, the employee is the person who has the upper hand in the employee-employer mm-hmm. mm-hmm. relationship. And that is generally not the case. Mm-hmm. As an example of that, um, I was on the Cape this past weekend, and you try going to a Dunks either there, <laughs> around here, or in um, Massachusetts, and you will have huge lines. They ha- cannot... Um, operate the uh, inner uh, portion of it, the counter. They don't have enough people working. They've shut down their hours. And the signs out front say, earn up to $19 an hour. Earn up to $15 an hour. And this environment has created a circumstance where they, for many, many years, um, they didn't have to pay a living wage. But now, Dunkin' Donuts um, in these locales is having to react to this environment and pay living wages. That's the only way they can bring people in the door. So there's that going on. Plus, there's a demand for the product. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Bagel Haven in Nashville, and um, uh, the woman who owns it said it was the busiest weekend she'd ever had before. She sold 800 bagels two days in a row before 11 a.m. That's a lot of bagels. That's a lot of bagels. <laughs> she was out. And so there's a demand for product, and the people who have Reward, Mark Cuban said this actually. The people who, have, who rewarded their workers during the course of the pandemic by keeping them on and having a stable environment are reaping the dividends now because they have shown loyalty, and now the employees, to a large part, are showing that loyalty back to them. Meanwhile, folks that laid off their workforce or reduced their workforce, they can't get employees back um, because of the environment. So now they're having to do different things, i.e., Dunkin' Donuts offering up to $19 an hour to start tomorrow, um, and that's the environment we're in. It is, but I see an opportunity there, Chris. I mean, I do think that um, that people are beginning to think about work, work and purpose. You know, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? And actually, I did um, orientation with um, 10 new folks who are coming in today and made that point that when you go to Dunkin' Donuts and they'll, they won't pay you that forever by the way they'll pay that until the demand um, uh, drops off and that and those hourly rates will, will drop but when you go to Dunkin Donuts that's it right you're working that shift and you go home and I would imagine that the opportunities at that organization aren't what they are at Bamsey first of all Bamsey offers a purpose Bamsey offers the idea of being part of a bigger organization that is dealing with a mission, a mission to to serve our population and our vulnerable population. But it also gives people the opportunity to think, do I want to do this? And if I want to do this and continue and do this, should I go and get qualified? Mm-hmm. Should I get my CNA? Should I go and get my um, social work degree? Whatever that might be, these pathways for nurses, for therapists, for um, you know, residential care workers are long and we can meet that need at this organization to say we will invest in you. And we're calling that the employee value proposition. 
And there is no value proposition to get a job at Dunkin' Donuts, I would argue. It's more about, I always remember in England, and maybe it was the same here, that if for employment signs it would say hands wanted. Uh, and I always thought it's just the hands you want. You don't right. want the whole body. Well, we want the whole body, and we want the whole body to stay with us, and we want to develop that that skill set of those individuals uh, along the line. And if you leave, that's okay because you might be seeking some opportunity elsewhere. But you might come back because you'll remember the investment that we made in you as an employee at this organization. We need to live by that. Yeah, two things off that. One, I think that organizations like NAMS are going to do incredibly well in this environment because people are looking for uh, meaning. They're looking for some flexibility. But you know, they want to have a job that they feel is greater than themselves and that they are helping others, and in return, those people are also helping them. So I feel that um, the BAMSI and organizations like ours will do incredibly well in this environment. I feel like Dunkin' Donuts is one of the hardest jobs on earth, and that those people deserve to make yeah. uh, 15 or $19 an hour sure. because it's incredibly demanding in that environment. It's about time that... Um, those individuals, whether it's in convenience stores or um, restaurants, uh, supermarkets, or and don't get that that money because um, you know it's it's a lot harder than most jobs and people that make a hell hell of a lot more than that. So I'm I'm, I'm good. That, I'm glad that yeah. environment's taking place. But um, I do feel that there is something to being a part of a organization that. Uh, helps to serve others in a way that is easily identifiable and also has that reciprocal relationship. And I'm interested in your take as to what the environment is going to be like in a living with COVID world for nonprofits in that um, there is that value to helping and serving a cause greater than your own self-interest and is that a direction that we're going to see not only you know new workers coming into the workforce uh go but also you mentioned those 50 year olds who you know gotten tired of the desk job and they in my view are largely going to drive a lot of the decision making that you're talking about before with how does business and um how does business look in a post-COVID or living with COVID environment? I think a lot of that, given the power that has been given to the worker via the workforce issues, a lot of that is going to be driven by the worker because you as CEO looking out and saying, well, my decisions, if they're, if they're not good, could lead to people leaving. Uh, it's hard to get people to come on. So the the power in this circumstance seems to fall strictly on the shoulder of the of the worker about what type of a workspace they want. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think I think it's been uh perhaps tilted uh away from the worker um and you know, you look at the um union membership in this country has just dropped precipitously since the 1980s. Um I think I think it's right. I think that that balance of power should be equaled out. And I, and I think all organizations, regardless of whether they need to because of the economy, should be paying attention to the people who are doing the work. And, you know, being, you know looking at their success and celebrating those folks and, and engaging 
those folks in all kinds of conversations about how the organization can can run because if you send edicts through the organization expecting people to pay attention and 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 listen to them then you're going to have you're going to have trouble if you engage people in that and the reasoning and and help them help them help you make some of those decisions those people are much more likely to sort of say yeah yeah i was involved in that i sign up for that i agree with it and that's you know that's the way we should be uh, recession or covid or not that's the way we should be doing business i think we're going to see a lot of different shall we say gimmicks in this environment to uh, to get people to work you know i mentioned up to 19 dollars an hour and you rightly noted that uh, there's no guarantee of how long those 19 hours are going to work or if how many hours you can get a week um, at $19 an hour. Um, you may start there because they need you at 40 and then all of a sudden, eh, how about 10? And how about we re- how about we do $15 an hour because guess what? Times are tough. That's yeah. all we can afford. Yeah. Um, so there's that. There's the upfront bonuses. Um, there's all those types of things. But I think that you have to look at it from a twofold perspective. What can you do to get people in the door right now? What can you draw uh, do to draw their attention um, to bring them in? But you also have to rework the foundation of your organization to meet people where they're going to be on the short and long term. So what, and I think the biggest thing is going to be flexibility. Uh, individuals do not, for the most part, do not want to go back to working 40 hours a week in the office on the job when they have not had to during the course of the pandemic. So you have to figure out where you're going to meet people, where they are on that particular topic. How are you going to provide them flexibility? And how are you going to provide them you know, upwards mobility through a organization so that you are a part of something um, if you want to be for, for the long term? So there's the get-in-the-door side of things, and then there's also the long-term side of things. And how do you create a, a culture where individuals feel that they belong, they want to belong, and they want to continue to belong and a lot of that has to do with relationships and one of the the, the best parts about BAMSI is you create relationships on a in a, a multiple uh, in multiple levels there's the co-worker and there's also you know the person served and that side of things I think is so you know significant where you may not get along with your co-workers every day but Oh, it's those person, those pe- person served that you're helping, that you uh, feel good about, or maybe some days the opposite. Yeah. Um, but it, it creates an environment based upon you know relationships, and how do you build upon that and create a level of what you talked about as well, where there is a feeling of control and buy-in for the employee that they have a part in. New organization. Yeah, I mean that's what we're we're trying to do with listening sessions and engaging in conversations and just sort of putting out ideas so that people can react to them. You know, I say to the people who are new to the organization, what you're going to see in the first six weeks is really important to us because you'll see how things are done. And maybe some people will say we've always done it that way. Well, that's the wrong answer. If you know a better way of doing it, then speak up. You know, there's so many examples of people who have been in different positions in organizations who have just been able to say, you know what, you might think about doing that differently. Mm -hmm. And that's created efficiency and change and better way of Mm -hmm. providing services. So these ideas don't come from one place. They come from everywhere in the organization. I think in conclusion here, we're going to go back to the beginning and talk about where we were 4th of July weekend two years ago versus now. 
And I feel like in the on the business side of things and um, an overall governmental structure side of things, we're in a better place. Uh, education and the impact that this is going to have on our kids, I think, is is substantial, and I think that it's going to be um, something that's going to have to be dealt with for years to come. So I think you can give across the board answer and just kind of cherry-picking a couple of different areas. But I think that overall, from a business perspective, the type of forced adoption that has taken place in the medical community and really across the board in business with the usage of technology, the focus on employee needs, I think we're in a much better place as a result of those forced adoptions because let's take telehealth as an example. None of this stuff ever would have happened ever would have happened without this pandemic taking place and there being a forced adoption. The change in mindset of allowing a large-scale number of the workforce to work from home as opposed to being in business uh, and in office settings never would have happened without the the pandemic. So these types of things that I think are going to be beneficial moving forward um, on a large scale, not just these couple things, has created an aspect of benefit during the course of the pandemic. It definitely has. And we have innovated through necessity. And that's, you know, you think about, I mean, I'll just give you an example. You know, in Britain, after the Second World War, Britain was flattened. They had to innovate. So they created the National Health Service, the education system, the Housing Act, all of those things that gave back to the people who had fought the war for them. That would have, wouldn't have happened within that time had there not been a catalyst event that mm-hmm. created that. We need to take advantage of that now and say, yes, this is tilting um, the axis back uh, to, the, to the people that are doing the work. That's good. It's also changing the way we do our work. Let's, not, let's take a full exa- advantage of that. And that's not just BAMSI. That's you know, payers, insurance companies, the state just don't let's not react immediately to it but let's see what was good let's see what wasn't and then we have this new hybrid way of going about our business which will be way better than july 4th two years ago and real change does not come unless there is a significant catalyst when you look at the history of human behavior until there is quote unquote a moment uh it does not necessarily change peter as always thank you so much Thanks, Chris. That's Peter Evers. He is the CEO of uh, BAMSI. I am Chris Ryan. Thanks for joining us for Humanity First.